Hi, welcome everybody. Um, uh, wonderful to be on this morning, just chatting to you about one of our sort of most important processes, burying the dead cats. Lovely to see everybody online. Um, so before we get going, just a reminder, um, our past leadership webinars um, in this sort of strategy cafe title are all available on the YouTube channel. Um, I think there's 62 fabulous interviews with leaders and discussions on a huge range of leadership topics. Um, including last month's interview um, between uh, Minter, uh, Dial, Michael, uh, Borelli, and Wanda about AI risks and regulations. So I am uh, highly recommend you go have a look at that, uh, have a bit of a dive in, loads of fabulous ideas in there. So today, though, is a bit of a change attack, as you can see from that agenda, um, and we're back to the human dynamic, particularly how uh, working on how we resolve tensions and conflicts opens up a pathway to all of that important chemistry essential to high performance in our teams. Efficiency uh, and kind of getting into this idea of team flow, whether that's your family within the family business environment or your colleagues. Um, and we're gonna be discussing the power of burying the dead cats. Uh, so before we get into that, let's just start with introductions. Uh, so welcome to the team. Morning, everyone. Shall I kick, kick us off? Um, noticing I might look a little different from that picture. That might need the updated website version. <laughs> uh, I'm Matt. I'm one of the senior strategy facilitators at Alembic. Uh, my background is in private healthcare, uh, but I work with businesses across all sectors today, um, working with leaders to help some of uh, solve some of their most complex problems. Yeah, I'll go next just because I'm next in the picture. Hello, everyone, and lovely to be here. I'm also a senior strategy facilitator at Alembic and a coach, and my background is management consulting and transformation. And this topic about conflict and tension is particularly relevant because when change happens, and especially transition into um, from A to B, can bring a lot of tension. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much, Barbara. Uh, my name is Wanda. I'm uh, also a strategy um, advisor and a, a senior coach. My background is in organizational psychology. I've worked with uh, teams all over the globe. And one of my favorite um, things to work with and work through is conflict. So it's a beautiful, rich, wonderful topic today. And I hope you all leave with something valuable. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, team. So uh, let's get going. So um, uh, here is uh, Daisy, Daisy the dead cat. Um, and um, uh, you can see a little bit of a note there about her. So a dead cat. What is a dead cat? And uh, you probably heard it talked about in UK politics. Uh, for us, a dead cat is what we use as a metaphor for the uncomfortable issues that prevent us from being in connection. Um, and we really like it because it's such a visceral image and um, a more powerful as a metaphor than this idea of the elephant in the room. You can't ignore it. You have to get your hands dirty here and deal with the smelly dead cats. Our process is really carefully designed to help team members solve their problems themselves. Uh, so we'll come on to more of that later. But for the moment, just think about using this process to bring a team back together after a period of hard work uh, where 
tensions will have just naturally elevated because of the time we have to properly talk through things. Um, and also to save relationships that are really close to breaking point. So those are kind of the main user cases clients have for our process of burying the dead cats. I just want to uh, say it's not a mediation. Uh, this is a really beautiful, carefully constructed coaching and facilitating process. And with that, I'm going to throw the ball to Matt and uh, okay. let Matt take us forward. Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah, Dead Cats is, is um, we think, a really amazing approach for resolving conflict, but definitely not the norm in businesses. Um, Nick mentioned mediation there, which people might be more familiar with, which can be a reasonable option to turn to. Um, you can get good value from it. Um, and it's great that some companies do have uh, mediation type processes, uh, but they can be very variable, both in success rate and what people actually do and what they use them for. Um, and sometimes, as Nick says, it's not, it's not addressing the kind of underlying issues. And is this variability in approach that I think is a good place to get started today? So to get us kicked off, I thought we would um, we would do a poll and have a look at how everybody in the audience and their business deals with conflict. And in fact, if they do deal with conflict at all. Excellent. So you should see up there, um, what is your organizational process for dealing with conflict? And that is, we don't have a process. We go to HR. Uh, we have some kind of process around mediation. And uh, we have board or director intervention, or uh, you don't know. So a lot of people have never run into this. Okay, so the two most common responses there are we don't have a process or board or director intervention. Interesting. We did. We suspected the first one might come up highly. And it's interesting we've got board and director intervention in there as well. Um, and we'll come, come back to that in, in the next section. Thank you for the votes. Uh, next slide. Thank you. Uh, so I suppose a good place to continue on this line of thinking um, is why is it important to deal with conflict in organizations and what can be the potential implications of doing nothing or uh, just dealing it with, with it very badly or with no process. And when I was thinking through this, the first three things that came to my mind were probably number one time, can be very time consuming. Uh, number two was probably around cost and maybe number three around team performance. Uh, so they were, they were the three things that came to my mind anyway. And I'm sure there'll be other things which come to other people's minds, depending on um, how much you've done this and what specifically you've had to deal with around conflict. And in fact, these three things kind of tie together in reality. Time, time is money, uh, poor performance has cost implications, et cetera. Um, I'm sure many of you have been in a position to see firsthand how conflict and some of these things can affect teams and businesses as a whole and how really disruptive it can be. Um, I think one of the, the reasons it can be so damaging to teams and the way that they work in general is that it creates an environment where people can naturally shy away. Um, you might have a few confrontations around specific issues um, or a project or a disagreement, uh, but in the long run, people tend to avoid others where it's likely they're gonna end up in confrontation. Um, after all, it can be very tiring and disruptive. Um, and the body tends to condition us to avoid things which are really highly draining. So we'll stay away from situations like that. 
Um, this kind of avoidance can lead to some of the more noticeable things, um, things like poor communication in teams, which can lead to inefficiencies, uh, people just not following the processes which have been agreed and doing their own thing. You can have things like infighting, siloed working, you can end up with really poor morale in your team and reduced staff satisfaction. And actually you can end up with poor, uh, poor reported mental health or even increased staff turnover. And I'm sure uh, everybody knows uh, what pain recruitment is. So it can have, it can have serious implications um, and it really de depends on what that situation looks like. Um, when we consider conflict at a leadership or board level, uh, the effect can be even more impactful. It's probably worth noting uh, just at this point, um, while we're looking at unresolved conflicts, which is causing issues in businesses, there's also, also a healthy level of conflict, which can be useful to work through. Um, and in a board setting, that, that is particularly um, noteworthy as directors are trying to solve some of the more difficult and high stakes problems in the business. And a bit of tension and conflict is definitely healthy and really normal in that situation. It's when you end up with uh, long-standing conflict and damaged relationships um, around an area, particularly where it's seemingly unable to be resolved, um, that you can end up with some proper issues arising. Some of the issues here uh, and implications around uh, leadership conflict can be things like uh, disjointed or poor messaging coming from the leadership, uh, apparent lack of direction with uh, no clear joined up vision or uh, something like inertia in decision-making and things like that. Um, and ultimately it can have an impact on the company culture and, and factor into a whole host of other problems. I think often people really underestimate um, how much it can be felt throughout the business and uh, consistency and leadership is particularly important and can be really difficult when you don't have good alignment with the leadership team. And there's, there's also definitely a, something we talked about at Alembic when we were talking about this. There's often an element of normalcy bias with things like this, where people just get used to the way it is um, and it just feels normal, kind of business as usual. Um, and why this, while this can be good for making people feel less stressed out, um, for all the reasons above, it's, uh, it's not great. Uh, next slide, please. So when we think about conflict resolution in business, one of the first things which often comes to mind as a solution is HR. Uh, now HR has its strengths and its weaknesses. It can be really great for some things. It can make people feel really supported. Uh, it gives everybody a fair voice and the clear process can help people in what can be quite difficult or ambiguous times. Um, however, there are also areas where the standard HR process doesn't really fit well, uh, or the department could maybe not be empowered to address the real issues, or uh, the structure could feel uh, too controlling and leave people feeling pushed or isolated. Uh, now, again, I am uh, generalizing a little bit with HR because I acknowledge that there are some fantastic HR departments out there with uh, really, really good capabilities. Um, and might be really empowered. Um, but I think um, I think mostly the focus with HR is on resolving uh, specifics, like the thing which has caused the problem. Um, and this approach, uh, when done well under the right circumstances can be good, 
but often you see the same people coming back with so similar problems further down the line. And as we alluded to a little bit at the start, it can be because this process is aimed at resolving something specific, like a specific conflict and not the underlying relational problems which are perhaps causing these things to happen in the first place. So it can fall short of resolving uh, resolving the conflict in a more permanent way. As I mentioned, uh, mediation is something which can fit into this box as well. Um, there's also a point for many businesses, um, I think particularly smaller ones, uh, where HR can be a little bit of an afterthought, and maybe there's not a good process in place for a resolving conflict. Um, it might be more structured around things like standard performance improvement plans, problems with uh, conduct, hiring, firing, avoiding legal issues, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, next slide, please. Um, when you look at the board and how conflict is managed in that space, um, you find even more variability than we've talked about already. Um, if you think about it, it is a little puzzling. The most high stakes environment in your business tends to be the one where it is most common to have no process at all around conflict. We talked about this um, a bit at Alembic when we were um, doing our discussion before this webinar uh, about how it is quite normal with a board um, and conflict to do nothing. Um, I think uh, one of the major contributing factors for me is it is really, really difficult. There's kind of, there are no standard processes. Uh, getting it wrong can have really high consequences. consequences. Um, and HR generally are just not empowered at this level uh, to intervene really, really rarely in small companies. Um, and the only real structure I could think about when we were talking this through uh, was kind of clauses in shareholder agreements around mediation where you can't come to an agreement. Uh, but I think when we talked about it, we couldn't really think of good examples of where this was used well before kind of lawyers have become involved and the process had really fallen apart. Um, at this, this point, I'm interested to pose the question to my colleagues. Um, where have you seen uh, these kind of HR processes really struggle? And I think, uh, I think Nick, you had a, a good example when we talked through it. Yeah, if it's okay to come in. I, I mean, this is like the classic classic space for burying the dead cats because, um, as you say, Matt, you know, you might have an HR director, but the HR director is the director amongst equals at this level, you know, and, and in a way, uh, even though that's kind of true legally, um, probably um, you know, the lesser of equals, right? Because um, there's a chief executive there or a managing director and a chair. And just from a kind of status point of view, they've got kind of more seniority um, around the board table. Um, and so it's incredibly tough for the HR director to um, manage conflict uh, laterally and upwards. That's, that's not really a thing. Um, so, you know, either you kind of go into a bit of isolation and the HR director is maybe supporting the chair or supporting the chief executive, right? And uh, trying to, to help with that. Um, it's a real struggle uh, for them. Um, and, and then you've got to ask the question, you know, uh, it's a relationship set around the board table. So inevitably here, uh, the chief executive and the chair are involved. Uh, they might not like think they are. They might want to be kind of polarized and you know blaming other board members, um, but really everyone is involved. Um, so there's no way out of that loop, uh, really. And at this level, um, unless you're going to descend into um, legals, in which case you go to your shareholders agreement, um, 
or uh, maybe you've got a great chair and uh, sometimes people have really good chairs who are very neutral and not political and will step in at this point and try and resolve things even if it's with the chief executive they can kind of have a word with the chief executive and that's kind of part of the the chair's role otherwise you need someone outside the system and this is a great user case for um a facilitation right to to try and resolve this uh who else who else wants to come in barbara i see you want to come in yeah um what i'm hearing is power play here so and the board but also um, personalities and inflexibility in a way and lack of a process, a structured process. And these are some of the causes that we observe a lot in businesses. And I would like to take this as an opportunity to talk more about what are the causes that um, uh, cause that cuts in businesses and organization um so um if we go to the next slides we have clubbed um a number of factors so environmental factors play an important role when um intentions and conflict particularly communication lack of or pure communication, so poor communication within the organization can lead to misunderstandings, misinterpretation, and ultimately conflict. Equally, something that we don't necessarily, and companies do not um, necessarily pay attention to is the misuse of channels of communication. That can create loads of uh, misunderstanding and tensions. Um, badly delivered feedback and tendency to unstructured feedback can also um, create resentment that can um, then um, cause friction and, and, and tension rather than growth and improvement. Um, ambiguity within our organization which translates into unclear goals and this could be widespread or it can be coming from the board or from um, just um, supervisors and just specific teams. So unclear goals, unclear expectations, um, vague projects with not necessarily good KPIs, so key performance indicator, um, are good ground for breeding conflict. Um, and that's because um, individuals and teams are unclear about what's expected of them. Equally, in terms of environment, we have um, unclarity about structures and roles because not clearly defined structures and accountabilities, uh, again, translates into individuals not knowing what's expected on them and um, just stepping on each other's toes, which um, uh, is about specifically about responsibilities and decision making who has got the authority to make decisions last but not least um highly competitive uh, cultures can lead to conflict because individuals or teams tend to want to prove themselves right rather than um turning to colleagues as collaborators um then too much competition turns colleagues into enemies or rivals. 
Um, normalcy bias is something that Nick already mentioned. So leaders exhibiting behaviors that normalize conflict um, rather than addressing them, then can trickle the whole organization down into just thinking that that's normal. Now, some personal factors have already been mentioned. And within the personal factors, what we tend to observe is literally personalization. So people <laughs> taking things personally, even if they're not intending to. But this means that minor things can escalate into significant disputes among specific people. And um, conflicting values and principle. And I think, Steve, in the chat, you have put that. Yes, we see that a lot. I mean, conflicting values and principles can lead to friction and conflict. Um, at personal level, um, which can also reflect at organizational level, a lack of um, emotional intelligence. So a lack of effective communication, active listening, empathy. So really essential skills to resolve conflict. The lack of that can then foster um, conflict and tension. Um, and sometimes is also forcing the resolution of a tension and a conflict from the organization um, can also at a personal level create resistance because if um, the organization and the processes within the organization do not um, um, solve the root cause of the problem, then people feel that they are forced into something that is effectively not um, helping them and therefore resistance can happen. Now, few more in terms of um, high affect context and what we mean by that is emotionally charged situations so when emotions runs high so for example there are times in the year year end for example can be um one time when emotion runs high as especially if business performance is not hitting targets that can create um heightened emotion and stress which can lead to tensions and conflict and also we have um, spoken about low morale sometimes when there's loads of change or loads of transformation that again might not necessarily um, cut off for people emotions and people might be scared fearful dissatisfied and therefore all of that can create um, uh, an environment where um, disputes are likely to emerge we have already talked about relational skills and emotional skills in general. Um, particularly important to mention here is that if leaders, if supervisors um, have not got the skills, then um, the conflict um, might be, the role modeling of how to deal situations when conflict arise might not be role model and that can um, create even major effect in the organization.
Now, these are some of the, the causes, and there are many more, and as we're going to speak through, a um, few more will arise, but we club those into this main factor. And then what we wanted to um, share with you is the symptoms. So what are the things that you should be really looking out for when um, there is underlying conflict and how can you um, overall um, recognize this? So silos is um, very, it's, it's a symptoms that shows up when there is conflict and tension and it's silos department that can um often uh fail so it can often um descend into sites division so division in terms of people not cooperating steam not cooperating and this can show up in many different ways um so it can show up just in communication and lack of communication or in um disruptive uh communication but also in systems not being updated um you will also see um a lot of what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse which is basically disrupting behavior so um you can see criticism you can see contempt so disrespect happening um stonewalling so disengagement and equally defensiveness and this can show up in many different ways and lack, um, last but not least, is um, ambiguity. So as we said, contradictory messages, contradictory goals, um, and um, unclear guidance. So these are some of the main symptoms. So these are things that you can see. And now I will put back into the team um, a question about why do you think this is important to, so why is it important to manage uh, this situation in the right way, but especially at the right time? And whoever wants to pick that. I'll pick that up, Barbara, because I think it leads beautifully into um, what I'm going to just um, mention, which is really around uh, focusing on why you might want to resolve these and why it's really critical. And I think for me, one of the biggest factors um, goes back to what you were saying previously about um, uh, resentments and disappointments and disillusionment and personalization um, that often sits um, beneath the surface um, and therefore comes up again and again and again. Um, and this is why we see kind of repetitive cycles of conflict a lot of the time if it's not resolved well. Nick, um, can you maybe put on my slide? Thank you. That's great. So where I wanted to pick up with that was just to say that, um, you know, it's it's a little bit all of those factors um, that are potentially not resolved um, when we think that we've moved past the conflict um, or past the tension. Um, a lot of these underlying factors still remain. And it's a little bit like a bump under the carpet, really. Uh, you know, we'd, we uh, sweep them under there and we can't really see them every day. But over time, that bump gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually the bump is so big that it trips us up. You know, we're trying to get from A to B as a team or try to get from A to B as an organization. And um, there's all this stuff that's in the way under the carpet. 
Um, so the knock-on effects of actually uh, not resolving a conflict well um, or just ignoring those elements um, of kind of resentment or disappointment or personalization, just trying to ignore those and, and pretend that we're moving on, uh, you know, can have huge um, implications down the line. Uh, everybody's uh, conflict tolerance levels um, are very, very different. Everybody views conflict in very different way um, because it's very personal. Um, and people do tend to personalize um, uh, issues when they come up. So all of our lenses uh, through which we engage with the world, like all of the things that we've experienced, how we've seen conflict, conflict resolved in the past, um, whether we view conflict as something to be avoided or something to be worked through, these all will impact our ability to really have a, a, a tolerance uh, for conflict and be able to resolve things in, in a healthy way. Uh, next slide. Thank you, Nick. So what does it really feel like then when we're experiencing conflict? Well, conflict is a little bit like bumping up against each other. Imagine that all of the lenses that we see the world through and all the lenses that we view things on is like a VR headset. And our view and our perceptions of what's going on is this VR headset that we wear all the time. Now, if I'm wearing a VR headset and I'm in one reality and Matt's wearing a VR headset and he's in another reality and Barbara's wearing a VR headset and she's in a third reality, if we're all wandering around in these different realities, it stands to reason that we're gonna bump up against each other. And so conflict is often a bumping up. You know, it's a bumping up where uh, we just not seeing things in the same way. We're not experiencing things in the same way. We can't step into one another's realities of what's happening. Um, and so therefore we bump up against each other. It's completely, completely normal. For me, there's kind of two polarities around conflict. The one is tension and the other is friction. Uh, tension can actually be a really, really healthy form of conflict. It helps keep things in balance. Um, it, it helps open up different perspectives, uh, give one another different lines of sight of information that we might need to move forward. And then there's friction. And friction is really uh, where that bumping up moves from a kind of a mild kind of nudge up against one another to this kind of wild hurtling where we're actually like banging up and it can be really, really painful. Um, so sometimes it's easier to navigate um, if there's someone else in the room helping us to really uh, move forward, uh, you know, um, to really help us to move towards something and to move toward one another as opposed to away from one another. Um, it's like having a little bit of a guiding hand sometimes that can actually help us to direct towards one another instead of us wandering around in our VR headsets quite blindly. So why does it feel so awkward or uncomfortable or painful? Uh, so it feels that way because uh, you want something and I want something different. <laughs> so there's already that tension. Um, and sometimes it feels so uncomfortable because uh, we just don't have a really well-aligned, uh, well-developed capacity for holding that discomfort. Uh, so developing the capacity to hold that discomfort is, um, is really, really an important uh, part of this beautiful Bury the Dead Cats process that we have. 
And often when we're trying to get our point across or we imagine that the person's VR headset is really fixed on and they're, they're going in their own direction and not even worrying about our direction, we just tend to restate our positions more and more and more and harder and harder and harder. Um, and that actually drives us further apart. Um, it, they, we then experience this kind of ballooned discomfort, polarized states where we're both sitting on opposite ends. I have my view, you have your view. There's a lot of discomfort and it's really, really become a hugely inflated situation and develops a life of its own. As Barbara spoke about personal aspects, um, uh, people really don't understand one another or communicate effectively with one another um, through those, through that bumping up, uh, through that balloon discomfort. Um, and so therefore, um, it just uh, perpetuates the discomfort and the painful situations just perpetuate. Can move on to the next slide, please, Nick. So really, why does it happen? Well, our permanently predicting brains are really designed to protect us. They're simply doing their job. And when we feel discomfort, um, our brains perceive a threat and therefore uh, we react toward that threat um, designed to really protect us. So embracing tension is stepping out of our comfort zone into complexity and holding, being able to hold that space um, where we feel the discomfort, but we're able to be in that discomfort at the same time. So it's a really delicate balance to be able to do that without a tipping into chaos. Um, but it looks a little bit like this, right? It looks like the fact that that discomfort or that distortion is really big in the beginning and our comfort zone is really tiny and our growth zone sits somewhere in between. But the more that we can develop that capacity to be in the discomfort and move through it and express ourselves in healthy ways and to move from the unhealthy conflict to the healthy tension potentially um, as a way of resolving um, uh, all the stuff that's under the carpet, our, our, um, our zone begins to grow. Our capacity for being in the discomfort begins to grow. Next slide, please, Nick. And so really learning to embrace the tension like this, um, this um, high wire artist here is, is really the key, right? Um, learning to really embrace that tension, to recognize it when it comes up for us, and then learning the skills that are associated with holding a lot of different perspectives at one time. So I might see truth in the 1D, Matt might see truth in the 2D, and Nick might see truth in the 3D when actually they're all the same thing. So being able to hold these multiple perspectives um, is re are really some of the, the skills um, that we, um, uh, uh, that we uh, encounter and that people learn through this Bury the Dead Cats process. Um, so why do these capacities really matter uh, when conflict happens? Uh, well, it really matters that we develop these capacities to be in discomfort because conflict is going to happen. <laughs> We're never going to agree with everybody. It's a normal part of life that we're going to experience tensions and frictions and conflict. Um, and we're living in increasingly complex and uncertain times. And because we're living in increasingly complex and uncertain times, we're going to find uh, that uh, people are going to think very, very, very differently and feel very, very differently 
about all of that complexity and uncertainty. So um, I'm going to hand to Nick, who's who's going to maybe tell us a little bit about um, how to kind of um, address uh, the way through this before it gets a life of its own and really grows, uh, catches momentum and catches fire, uh, because so often conflict situations do. Yeah, so thank you very much, um, Wanda. I think this um really beautiful uh, way to sort of wrap up the context of conflict. And I kind of want to um, make a link here. So Steve um, has put a, a lovely comment up about expectations. And so I think everyone can kind of tune into that. Um, that if I expect conflict, um, then my uh, discomfort uh, is going to rise. And if I expect conflict to be unresolvable, then that's how I'm going to be coming into it. Um, and if I expect conflict to be unresolvable and um, really horrible, then um, my tension, my defensiveness is going to be really primed or my fight flight response is going to be very close before I even start sort of talking about it. And so this idea that our, our expectations uh, are deeply involved in how we uh, come towards conflict, it's really important. And actually, it's much more subtle than just like the cognitive idea of what am I expecting? Like I'm expecting an appointment at nine o'clock is like one really simple way of saying uh, expectations. There's a really deeper um, way of understanding expectations, which it is literally everything that I am doing is an expectation like how how the next moment is going to unfold for me is a deeply felt expectancy right so it's a, a whole mind body experience this idea of expectations and so if you want to change your experience of conflict what you've got to do is you've got to change how your group expects conflict to work out which is why it's hard because that's deeply habitual um, and causes so many mistakes. So when we're talking about differences in beliefs, I just put a note up on the chat about this. Most commonly we find that's just a different way of interpreting the same thing. It's a mistake. It's normally a mistake when I think you don't believe things the way I do. It's part of this sort of distorted reality that happens. You know, and it can gain an energy um, of its own. Uh, so this idea of momentum. Uh, if our expectation uh, is that conflict is going to balloon, then that rapidly gains energy and momentum, which is pulling us apart. And the process of bearing the dead cats really slows things down, um, makes people properly pay attention, uh, allows people to be deeply heard, and uh, unpins some of these expected outcomes with surprise, which is, okay, that wasn't what I was expecting. You know, when we actually slow down, that wasn't what I was expecting. So from a moment of discomfort, heightened discomfort, to a moment of surprise where it's not like that. And that's that wonderful moment where your expectation about this conversation changes and you think, okay, maybe this is going to be okay. All right. So bearing the dead cats just give you that moment to pause and reconnect, uh, to ask that really hard question. Do you believe something different from me? Can we resolve that? Can I apologize for my misunderstanding? Can I forgive uh, you? Can you forgive me? Can I let go of that? What do we do about that then? You know, how do we problem solve that? 
but it's this process of letting the emotions be expressed in a safe and constructive way and that helps knit a deeper interpersonal connection and it helps people gain this deeper level of insight about themselves about each other about the competencies that we can bring um, how we can support this kind of process of uh, knitting the discomfort back into uh, a direction together and so um, in a way the possibility here is to go beyond just solving the immediate route and getting into what we would describe as real mastery as a member of the leadership team or as a leader you know and how you understand bringing people together and getting teams moving forwards together rather than just friction and moving apart so that kind of idea um, and um, there's really important background framing for this. So just to kind of loop through it for you, um, it's really important that everyone chooses. It shouldn't be a forced process. Uh, you need to choose to participate. It needs to be safe, right? So there needs to be agreement that the only action that's going to happen during Bearing the Dead Cats is talking and talking in confidence. Um, it needs to be neutral. There needs to be neutrality. So you need that idea of a facilitator there who's not involved. Uh, he's neutral, he's there for the conversation, not for anyone. Um, there needs to be acceptance. Uh, so everyone needs to be ready to accept and listen to every voice and treat every voice that's going to be spoken as having a valid thing to say, even if it's you know, revved up by emotion, there's something there that needs to be heard. Um, it needs accountability. So there needs to be a willingness just to ask people hard questions. Did you really in, not know that that was going to be the outcome of that? You know, can you just answer to that point, please? Um, people need preparation for this just to manage that expectancy and to get them kind of game ready for what might happen in a more emotional space. There needs to be a sense of commitment uh, to stay with this conversation until it's done. Uh, and that's required kind of at the outset. There needs to be an openness, right? So um, this is a space where we talk through all possible options. Like we talk through all possible options, which is way better than fighting about those options uh, if you can't resolve. And then fundamentally, it needs to be surrounded by expertise. You know, someone there who can read patterns of emotional communication uh, and understand what might be uh, going on for people uh, as uh, their body language is expressed in so many beautiful ways yeah um so i just say that maybe most clients just want to bury the dead cats and remove that deep discomfort like it's not nice to be in a position where you're feeling really uncomfortable um you know leadership teams are desperate to get back to getting on with things and they don't want the time to be spent on this right so getting rid of the dead cats is just an amazing relief um for people uh, and although the first kind of round of this can feel like quite scary for everyone as soon as people have experienced it they kind of want to do it because um the gain of doing burying the dead cats is so huge in terms of time efficiency and relationship that we have clients just saying can we do a bury the dead cat session please which you might surprise you um so most clients take enough from the sessions to be able to resolve the future challenges themselves which is really brilliant but the tools and the skill sets and the capabilities that are inherent in this kind of process are really powerful and so for some people this is a wonderful opportunity for them to really think about developing their mastery as a leader uh, their family business capability their leadership team capability and some clients really latch onto that idea and take the opportunity of self-development uh, as far as they can Okay, so 
Um, we've got some wonderful questions, and I'm hoping that everyone uh, can stay on for a few minutes while we unpack those. If it's okay with you all, I'm just going to run through uh, what's coming next, and then I'm going to close the session for everybody, uh, this discussion about dead cats, turn the mics off, uh, invite everyone who's still here to just join in and ask their questions uh, to us um, collectively, and we can have maybe just 10 minutes of discussion around this kind of to wrap up together off, off the mic. So uh, thank you very much for coming, everybody. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you about Burying the Dead Cats. Next time in the new year, on the 25th of January, we're going to be having a, a leadership interview with this wonderful guy, John Hart. So John Hart runs a business around integrity, integrity around the way the boards work. And so uh, this is about being investor ready and what are the processes of behavior and ethics at board level you'd expect to see to generate that confidence in your decision-making process and your leadership. So whether you're a founder or a family business, uh, this is going to be a great session uh, for, for, uh, for you to just come in and tune in on and just uh, have a think about, a think about what you can do to improve your board's ethics and integrity. Right. So thank you very much for coming today.